We've been uh, traveling through this summer series called Disciples, and we've looked at a, several different aspects of discipleship. We've tried to make this sort of a back-to-the-basics kind of reality, and yet the truth of the gospel is it's all basic and it's all really hard, right? It's basic and love to receive it, hard to apply a lot of the time. And many of these words somewhat singularly define what it means to be a disciple. We talked about the fact that disciples worship. I mean, that's a singular defining word. If you were going to say one thing about disciples, it would be that they worship. Disciples go is a singularly defining word. And again, this morning, we have one of these singularly defining words. That is, if we were to be forced to define the word disciple in one word, this would probably be a fantastic definition of disciples. That is that disciples follow. And disciples of Jesus then are followers of Jesus. But in this simple word, there's all kinds of realities that come out of it that we've got to figure out together this morning. The word discipleship is tossed around in church circles like crazy. Uh, In... You know, it's a big thing, like, what is it to define a disciple? And and what is discipleship? What is your discipleship plan, right? What is your discipleship plan? What are you doing? And as a church, as a pastor, what is your discipleship plan for your people? Well, (laughs) I always love that question, right? Because, you know, in order, you know, if church is looking for a new pastor, that's one of the questions they ask. If a denomination is looking for a church plan, that's, well, they want to know, what's your discipleship plan? Tell me what your plan is. Well, Far be it from me to think that I can impose on you a plan, right? That's not the job of the pastor, I don't think, to impose on you a plan. The job of the pastor is to lead you, besides still waters, to green fields for you to eat, right? And something about eating and consuming has to be natural to who you are in terms of being a disciple, If I impose a plan on you, then a certain percentage of you are going to succeed in discipleship because you're a lot like me. Because what you'll find out is the plan I impose on you is the plan that I use for myself, right? Because it works for me. It's how I'm wired what I do. So much more, I think, than discipleship as a plan, it is discipleship as what does it mean for you individually and as a family or as a cluster of people to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus. And there's a lot of individual work for you to do on that. It's my job to help you. It's my job to to put you in the right places. It's my job to to sort of fan the flame. There's a lot of work for you to do in that. Now listen, here's one of the reasons why it's so difficult. Because in the modern world, discipleship is very formulaic and systematic. Super structured, right? Right? So when I was growing up in the church, like there were tiers of discipleship. And you went through this class, and once you finished that class, you did this class, and then you were on to that class, and at the end of it, you got a certificate, right? You graduated with a degree in discipleship, you know? Because this is the modern world. It's all curriculum and structure, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it is super information-based, not very practicum-based. And we all know what happens when we overload ourselves with information. Not much of it occurs in our life. It just fills our heads, right? So many of us, if we've grown up in the church for a long time, uh, like I have, you are super discipled in your head. You've got it all in there. <laughs> and figuring out what to do with it, many of us haven't made much progress, myself included, right? Because, you know, it's, it's difficult. It's 
hard. But listen, discipleship is skewed because if you look in the Bible about what discipleship is like, it's a very different paradigm than the modern church. It's a very different paradigm than the modern church. In fact, discipleship in the days of Jesus looked like rabbis with a small cluster of followers. Sharing life together and learning holistically. So, in the first century world of Jesus, a rabbi uh, who was uh, an esteemed or known teacher would gather the select few, uh, the best and the brightest of the area, those who could pass the entry exams, those who had done well in the smaller schools, and they would come to what was quote uh, called living after, unquote, the rabbi. This is what discipleship did. You would live after the rabbi. In other words, you went where he went. You did what he did. You saw him interact. See, discipleship in the first century world of Jesus was much more around a person and his people than it was around a school of thought. For us, discipleship is much more about a school of thought based on our systematic theology in the modern world than it is about the person of Jesus and being about him. Very different things to think about. So, the first century world of Jesus, you had rabbis and their pods of people. They lived after the rabbi, completely about a person. Uh, And so in that way, it was holistic, right? It was not just cognitive. It was holistic. That is, it was was even much more practicum, to use a collegiate word, than a classroom lecture. So they were uh, even more concerned, excuse me, they were concerned with finding the right answers to important questions, but they were even more concerned with seeing the righteousness of the rabbi than hearing his right answers. You see it? So, in other words, they didn't go to the rabbi to learn what the proper position was on any given social issue, any given theological issue. They went to see the rabbi put that belief into action 24-7. How does he interact with the people he's teaching? How does he demonstrate his point? How does he get it across? What about these other situations? Because we all know when we learn stuff in uh, the non-life-oriented box of the classroom or Sunday school class or Sunday morning sermon, and then we try to apply it in life, there's so many variables that skew how to figure that out. The discipleship was living after the rabbi. This is what's going on. So Jesus, naturally, when he wants to institute discipleship, what does he do? He calls a select few to live after him, to follow him, right? This was his classic word in the opening of the public ministry of Jesus, and really all throughout Jesus' ministry was, hey, you, follow me. What's fascinating about Jesus' strategy is, There's no prerequisites. It's no longer the best and the brightest of the young Hebrew minds. It's now fishermen. People who are already in trades because they couldn't cut it in the Hebrew religious society of becoming a lawyer or a scholar or a scribe or a rabbi. So they're already following their, their dad in trades. They're fishermen. And then he calls tax collectors. All of these people. So basically what he's saying is, hey, this is open to everyone. That anyone who desires intimacy with Jesus, anyone who would want to follow after this rabbi, is not only able, but is welcome and embraced. So let me ask the question, well, why do people 
come to Jesus. Why do they come to Jesus? Well, for many of them, there are three things they want. Right? They want answers. They want help. Or they want wisdom. Answers help wisdom in many ways. And in the New Testament, we see time after time after time, this is why people come. Nicodemus comes at night because he wants answers. Right? People who are sick come whenever they can because they want help. Disciples are constantly wanting wisdom. So people come to Jesus for these things. And really what's going on there is they come to Jesus to be informed by Jesus. Or maybe to put it a little more crudely and honestly, they come to use Jesus for their own purposes. I've come to you so that you can answer this issue for me. And based upon how you answer it is what I'll do with you. You know? But what I would suggest to you is there's a whole other way of coming to Jesus, and this is what Jesus says to all those who would come to him, and that is to follow him. And when you follow him, it is no longer about acquiring answers or even help, but it's actually about getting to the person of Jesus. And remarkably, what you find when you begin to follow Jesus and live after him is a greater depth in answer, a greater bounty in help, and a greater breadth in wisdom than any of the shallow things that church and religion or the red words alone of the Bible give you when you're looking for just an answer. See it? See, what Jesus wants is not people to come to him so that he can inform them. He wants people to come to him so that he can form them. And it's a whole different way of thinking about discipleship. For most of us, let's just be honest, discipleship has been about being informed about Jesus. This is not discipleship. Discipleship is following after, living after the rabbi that we might be formed by him. And everyone is welcome. Not just those who have kept the moral high ground. We're talking about tax collectors here, right? Not just those who have scored high on the Hebrew entrance exams. We're talking about fishermen. And so then we have to ask ourselves, then, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And we could talk about this for days and weeks and months, and we could do a whole series about this reality. But I want to do it in three very big kind of realities this morning, three very big statements and ideas so that we understand the the, the general overarching concept of what it means to follow Jesus. So let me give you these three things up front, and we'll talk about each of them for a few minutes. The first is that we've got to make a break. Got to make a break. Second is we've got to take action. Third is we've got to stay the course. I don't know know if those are catchy enough. I don't know if I get a good homiletic score, but if you write them down, you might remember them. Okay? Make a break, take action, stay the course. Let's figure out what, I'm, what I mean by this. First thing involved in following Jesus is make a break. And what I mean by that is that in order to follow Jesus, you naturally must leave your current path and start a new one. Right? You must leave your current path and start a new one. So look at any of the, of the New Testament stories where Jesus calls someone. Let me just give you, a, when I was growing up, and maybe this is what you think too, when I was growing up, I was always amazed at these stories, right? 
Jesus walks by, and there's a boat of fishermen out there. And he's like, hey, you guys, follow me. And they're like, okay, we'll do it. You know, like, this is miraculous. But, of course, we know they had to have relationship with him before. They had to have heard him teach. They had to have been processing what they wanted to do. This wasn't just the initiation of the conversation. Hey, okay, stranger, I'll follow you. All right, I'll lay down everything and go after you. But what he was saying to them basically was, no, no, now's the time. What's it going to be? And in each of the stories, the most remarkable thing is not what I originally thought, that it was this miraculous response to a stranger, but that when they leave, they leave everything for him. So think about the fishermen, the stories when they leave. Right? They're coming in off the seas in their boat, and he says, follow me. They're leaving their boats. They're leaving everything they caught. They're leaving their whole livelihood. One of them even leaves their dad in the boat, you know, to take care of everything. Think about the story of Matthew, Levi, when he was called. Jesus passes by the tax collecting booth and says, hey, Levi, follow me. And it says, it literally says, he left everything, right? Read that later. He left everything. And later that night, he threw a huge banquet, invited all of his tax collector friends. We'll talk about that story in a couple of weeks. Like, fascinating. Think about what a tax collector would have left, Right? All of the money they've been skimming off the top for their own pockets. A a non-respected job by Jewish accounts, but a steady income by working accounts, you know? This is a big deal. They left. But listen, there's something even bigger than the physical things they left, right? Because what they were actually leaving, this I think is this is this is what I what uh, discipleship is, is chiefly about to me, in my understanding. What they were really leaving was their identity. They were leaving their identity. See, when they left to follow Jesus, they would no longer be known as fishermen or tax collectors. Some of them would even no longer be known by their given name, right? Jesus said, oh, you're Simon? Well, I'm going to call you Peter. You know? Because I've got a reason for giving you this new name. You're going to be a rock, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. They were actually leaving their identity to start a brand new one. Now we're getting at the core of discipleship. Because what Jesus isn't asking you to do necessarily, right, is, all right, right, we're coming to this sort of baptistic end of our service later. There's going to be an altar call, and I'm going to say, if you're going to follow Jesus, you leave everything right here and you go after him. It's not really what discipleship is about. There's something to that, a willingness to anyway. But the real call to discipleship is, will you leave your humanly created identity to find your true identity in God through Christ. And the reality, church, is that while these disciples, some of them did, you know, many people did not. Many people did not. You might remember this story. Uh, You can turn there if you want to, but don't feel the need to. It's Matthew chapter 19, a famous story of The rich young ruler. Matthew 19, verse 16. Just then a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? In other words, what do I have to do to have the promised land? What do I have to do to have a full life that lasts forever? Again, eternal life is not just like when you're alive forever in heaven. It starts now and it's the fullness and the bounty of life we're meant to have. 
Jesus says, why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And being a shrewd lawyer, he says, which ones? (laughs) And Jesus says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And the man says, I've kept each of these. And Jesus says, well, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. This is not a story simply about, well, if you're really wealthy, you probably can't follow Jesus. The disciples are astonished because Jesus says, hey, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to get eternal life. But I don't think Jesus was necessarily solely talking about money. He's talking about identity, even in that question, right? Because we are all rich, you know? And then the disciples, because they caught on to this, they're like, well, then who can do it? Right? Because they knew it wasn't just rich and poor. And Jesus says, hey, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. In other words, God's got to do it. God's got to change your heart. You know, he's got to. So this isn't, a, this isn't naturally about wealth, but Jesus is basically saying to him, hey, you've made your whole identity in two things. One, that you're very religious. You keep the law. Two, in that you have great status and wealth. And if you want to follow me, then you've got to be willing to say, my identity is not in those things. It's in the one whom I follow. I tell you something that maybe will be difficult for you to accept this morning. Identity is equivalent to idolatry. I think so. Identity is equivalent to idolatry. Why? Because the things that you worship and trust... Those things actually are what you use to create your identity. And if those things aren't God, then they're idols, idolatry, right? We grew up reading these Old Testament stories of idolatry, of these bowing down to wooden statues and stones and modern, knowledgeable people. We would never do such foolish things as that. Well, (laughs) idolatry was never about what the image looked like. It was about what you trusted, In Old Testament terms, who are you going to trust to bring rain for your harvest? In modern terms, who are you going to trust to provide for your family? Right? In Old Testament terms, where are you going to look for in terms of who you will worship? In in modern terms, are you going to worship yourself? American dream? You know, worship your husband or your wife or the thought of a husband or wife? Or is it going to be... Jesus, right? Identity is idolatry. Or, if you don't want me to sound so negative, identity is worship. (laughs) And if your identity is not in the one who created you, then you're worshiping something different. Here's the truth. We're all idolaters, right? It's the beauty of the gospel is that God accepts fallen people. We don't have to stop that before we get there. So then... This notion of following means making a break. It means recognizing that we have made our identity in, in, in all the wrong ways and trusted for salvation all the wrong things. 
And so to follow Jesus at its first thing and really constantly all throughout our lives means to constantly make a break from the idols in our life. Make a break from the identity we've created. We don't just make a break in terms of just doing away with our old path. That is, we don't just stop worshiping idols and find our identity in them. We actually turn to worship God through Jesus who gives us a brand new identity in the gospel. That you are loved because God created you. That you are loved because God paid the price of his son for you. Not because of what you have done to prove yourself. Not because you're good enough. So many of us fight the battle of trying to be good enough, trying to be worthy enough, trying to be lovable. Why won't anyone love me? And and here's the God of the universe who is saying, I take you just as you are. This is an identity. It's an identity. See, Jesus didn't just say, hey, stop creating your identity in your stuff, rich young ruler. He said, not only stop doing it, but follow me. Right? Follow me. Live after me. Listen, repentance uh, does not just mean being sorry for what we've done. It does not just mean uh, being sorry for who we are, even. It, It literally means turning 180 degrees from who we were and what we've done and moving in a new direction. This is what Jesus says. It's what it means to follow Jesus, to be repentant people in that every day, maybe even every moment, we're saying, oh man, I've done it again. I, I break with my old self, my old identity, and I turn towards Christ, and I move into a worship of God. This is discipleship. This is what it means to follow Jesus. But listen, if we're going to follow him, then we've got to do something, right? Inherent in the word follow is some kind of action, I think. So the second thing is we've got to take action. Take action. And, and two quick sub-points under this. The first, first action that we take is that we call Jesus Lord. Right? You might think, well, duh. <laughs> but listen, calling Jesus Lord is actually a pretty bold statement. Calling Jesus Lord is the earliest first century, you know, the earliest Christian creed that we know. Jesus is Lord, right? So in Acts 2.36, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost, he says, listen all Israel, you have crucified Jesus. This one whom you have crucified, God has made both Christ and Lord. Right? In other words, both Savior and Master. Greek word for Lord is kurios. Uh, it, it is used of Yahweh God. It's a translation for Yahweh into, into Greek. So it's speaking about being God. It is also used of Caesar. It's speaking about being king. It's also used of masters. Right? This is the idea of being a master and king. Our God who is our master and king. This is what we say when we say Jesus is Lord. And remember, all of creation is moving towards this. What does Paul write in Philippians 2.11? That one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And kurios. We're saying that Jesus is our King and our Master. So we're saying something bigger than just, Jesus, you saved me from my sin. Thank you. No, we're saying that you're my king and my master, and inherent in that means I'm going to do what you say. Right? 
So the second sub-point here is that we do what he says. We do what Jesus says is the action that we take. You would think, well, if we're going to call him Lord, and if that's what Lord means, then obviously that's the point. But Jesus is very careful to realize that most people who call him Lord have no intention of seeing it through. Right? So in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he says to the crowd, uh, this is a paraphrase, but pretty close to a direct quote, hey, why do you call me Lord and then don't do anything I say? Luke 6, 46, right? Why do you call me Lord and then don't do anything I tell you to do? doesn't make sense, right? He's saying, if I'm Lord, then you do what I say. And then in, in Matthew 7, uh, verse 21, you can turn there if you want, but again, feel free to just listen. This is what Jesus said, and this is difficult teaching. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we go to church and worship and sing praises to you? Perform miracles and even drove out demons. And to them I will plainly say, I never knew you. Ouch. What is he saying? He's saying that, hey, to be caught up in the religious pomp and circumstance of following Jesus is not equal to following Jesus. Do you see it? Right? Just coming to church on Sunday is not following Jesus. Just going on tour with Jesus to his big stops and seeing miracles and even doing things for Jesus, that's not following Jesus. What does following Jesus mean? It means actually taking what he says and doing it. Oh, that's hard. Yeah. And you might say, well, Adam, you, you preach the gospel all the time, and, and you always say it's grace. It's not based on anything you do. Right? The gospel is what God has done for you. He takes you as you are. It's not based on anything you do. You can't earn it. You couldn't even earn it if you wanted to. And that's all true. But the scripture also teaches us that how do you know that you have believed the grace of God? And that is that you obey. Right? Very imperfectly... Right? Let's get this right. Very imperfectly, but we see this change in our life in a new direction that, in, that includes obedience to Christ in ways that we hadn't done before. Right? James says, show me faith without works and I'll show you something that's dead. You know? faith, or works or, or obedience does not save us, but it does demonstrate that we have been changed by God. And so Jesus says, hey, why do you call me Lord and then don't do anything I tell you to do? Right? In which case, I say to my kids, why do you call me Dad and then never do what I ask you to do? Right? Like this is the, even if you're not a parent, you know exactly what this feels like because you've lived this, you know? Like, or, or at work, why do you call me boss and then everything I ask you to do? You don't do. Or those of you who are teachers, God bless you, right? Why do you call me teacher and then never do what I ask you to do, you know? Just don't even bother. Don't call me that if you're not going to do what I'm asking you to do. I, I love this story. Uh, Francis Chan, who's a, a, a writer and a speaker, he tells this great story. 
and I'll just personalize it to me to, to make it a little more uh, relatable. He says, imagine you tell your kid. So let's, let's make this Tyler. Imagine I say to Tyler, Tyler, go clean your room. And Tyler comes back to me a half an hour later and says, Dad, I memorized what you told me to do. Is that going to cut it? Right? Am I going to be happy as a dad based on that? But what do we do as Christians? Right? We do a whole lot of memorizing what Jesus told us to do and not a lot of doing what Jesus told us to do. Or, or get this. What if Tyler comes back even later after I say, well, that's not good enough, and says, Dad, Dad, I studied what you asked me to do in the original Greek. Is that going to cut it? Or what if Tyler comes back to me and says, Dad, I got together a whole group of elementary students, all of my friends, we got together, and we're going to study what it would look like if I was to clean my room. Would that work? And of course, as parents or as teachers or as bosses, we'd say, no, none of that cuts it. And yet we spend almost all of our energy in the church memorizing, studying in original languages, gathering in groups to talk about it, and almost never doing it. Francis Chan's illustration, I think it's brilliant, isn't it? It's brilliant. Because we think, oh, it's so hard, but then like, we do the same thing all the time. You know? Listen, you only truly believe that which activates you. If you're not doing it, you don't believe it. Right? That's hard truth, but it's truth. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord if you don't do what I ask you to do? We say, well, that's what you asked me to do is hard. I don't like it. Well, is he Lord? It's a question we have to ask ourselves, right? Uh, And so the third thing that I think about following Jesus is this. You stay the course. You stay the course. What I mean by that is there are and there will be, and there will be many of them, challenging moments in life trying times when you are faced with the decision am I still on board with this Jesus thing? Let's just be honest. Am I still on board with this? A difficult teaching of Jesus that you're like, huh. What what would you do if you were the rich young ruler and Jesus said that to you? That's hard. What would you do? Now, most people look at the rich young ruler and say, oh, too bad. He really failed. I find hope in the statements of Jesus afterwards, that the disciples are like, well, who can do it? And Jesus is like, well, with God, it's not impossible. Maybe the rich young ruler a year later had a change of heart, right? Those challenging moments when you find yourself wrestling with real issues of faith, and if, if you're honest, you've had them. If, you're, if you've never had them, you're just not being honest. You know, where you're like, God, if you were good, you wouldn't do this. You know? Or, God, what is the purpose of all of this? Why do you let mosquitoes live, you know? Why, why do you let bad things happen? Why, why is the world as it is? Why, why, if you're good, why isn't everything happening the way it should be? Why is there death and tragedy? Why are these things happening? God, why is it that, that the people who don't even care seem to succeed in life, and I fight tooth and nail every single day? face these things all the time. Let's just be real. Religion is always like, oh, Jesus, we march on to victory. Onward, Christian soldiers. That's bunk, right? Like, real people here for a minute. We're like, God, you stink. This isn't right. It's not fair. There's a moment like that in John chapter 6. 
Jesus, I'm not going to take the time to read it. Let me just paraphrase it to you. <laughs> all these people follow Jesus because he's done unbelievable things. He's fed 5,000. All these crazy things are happening. They're following him. And then Jesus is like, hey, yeah, I just fed you guys, and it was miraculous. And uh, what I really want you to know is that I am the bread of life who's come down from heaven. And the Jewish people are like, whoa. Like, we liked the bread you gave us. But this is hard. This is confusing. We don't know what to do with this. What do we do about this? I'm confused by this. And Jesus, being who he is, just twists it a little bit deeper. Right? He can't let confusion enough. He he's drives him to, to, to irritation. He's like, and I want you to also know that if you want eternal life, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Well, now that he's, they're breaking the law, right? Because they're thinking everything literally. He's like, no, yeah, if you, if you want eternal life, if you want the abundance of life, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the people are, that's it, we're out. Listen, the point of bringing this whole passage up is not to wax eloquent theologically about what Jesus means there. I think I've got a pretty good understanding of it. That's for a whole other time. If you're interested, we can talk later. My point of bringing you up this morning is that there are constantly times, either through the teaching of Jesus the conviction of the Holy Spirit, or the circumstances of life, that we are faced with a crossroads where we are honestly asking the question, are we going to keep on this journey with Jesus? That our allegiance to Jesus is uniquely tested. And Here's what I want you to know. Disciples stick with Jesus. Even when nothing makes sense. Jesus didn't pull his disciples aside and say, hey, this whole eat my flesh, drink my blood stuff, I was just saying this stuff to you know, try to ruffle some feathers. Here's what I really mean. He never explained it. Imagine being Peter. You know, or John or someone. You're like, uh... It says, it says everyone left him. And Jesus turned to the twelve and said, hey, everyone's leaving. Do you want to leave too? And Peter, who every once in a while gets it right, got it right. He says, and I think this is just honest, raw faith. Right? I love this. He says, well, where am I going to go? Not, oh, I believe you, Jesus. What you said is strong. I'm all in on this. He's like, well, what am I going to do? I've left everything for you. And I'm trusting you that you have the words that lead to eternal life. See, true disciples, they stick with it. They stay the course even when things don't make sense, and even when we aren't given explanation for why things are the way they are. Because we truly believe the gospel, that Jesus has the words that lead to eternal life. Listen. In the course of life, there will be many moments when you are pulled strongly away from Jesus. Jesus himself says, that narrow is the road that leads to life. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. What does he mean? He means that a whole lot of people are going the wrong way because it's way more attractive, it's way more exciting, it seems way more prosperous and way more successful, but it comes to a smacking dead end around the corner. But few take the road that leads to life because it is hard and it is dusty and the marks on it are less footprints than they are crosses being carried 
up it. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. What kind of marching orders is that, right? Imagine if a presidential candidate, the theme of his election was, hey, pick up your cross and follow me. This was Jesus' marching orders. This is hard. Count the cost. And here's the, the hard truth, friends. Not everyone who starts out with Jesus finishes with him. We love to talk about eternal security, and I believe in it theologically. But you cannot deny the fact that not everyone who starts with Jesus finishes with him. And if you're, if you're someone who believes in eternal security like I do, then what you say is that they had never truly believed the gospel in its fullness. And everyone, you know, many people who are with Jesus and excited in the beginning, they flame out quickly. Jesus warned about this. Remember he told the, the parable of the soils? He says, some soil is going on the side of the road and the bird, uh, and I love this because I hate birds, sorry, you know, you ornithologists or whatever bird people are, you know. I just don't like it. One time I was sitting in my room and I had a window open with no screen. A bird flew in and hit me in the side of the head. Beak first. I've never forgiven the entire aviary population. Okay? I'm against them. I don't know what my political platforms are, but I'm against birds. All right? Jesus said that the birds come and eat those seeds and the bird is the devil. So I love it, right? There's the, there's the proof that we should all be anti-bird. Right? Those are the people that are just gospel schmospel. But he says, then there are also people who the, the seed lands on the good soil and it grows deep roots and it grows up and it lasts the long route. And we would think those are the two possibilities, right? But he says there's two, actually two more possibilities. There are those that grow amongst the thorns and are choked out because they're, the stresses and the worries and the, the excitements of life pull them away. And then I think even more Germanely, this morning, there are those that grow on rocky soil. They spring up quick. I'm all in, Jesus. And they quickly die out. And you know what Jesus says is an explanation why they die out? Because when things don't go the way they thought they would, they check out. As soon as they face hardship or persecution, they're out. Can I just tell you some hard truth this morning about following Jesus? Many of us get into this whole journey of following Jesus because we have found God to be useful for us. That is rocky soil. You will hit the point where you've grown no roots and you will flame out. Because you're going to hit a moment, several of them, where God does something you don't like. There's going to be no explaining it, no sort of Christianizing it and you know, these trite answers that pastors and Christians give to smooth it away. Because you know, that garbage doesn't work. And you're going to flame out and fan out, and many people have happened, it's happened to them. I see it all of the time. If this whole religion thing, Christianity thing, following Jesus thing is working for you now because God is useful to you, He's given you a way not to go to the fiery place. He's healed you miraculously of a disease. He's answered a prayer miraculously. There's coming a time when an answer is not going to go your way. And that's the moment you find out if you're a disciple or if you're just there to be informed by Jesus. 
Discipleship about God being useful to you. This is, this is why people fall away. This is the reason, always. People fall away from the faith. I've seen pastors, I've seen missionaries, you know, people who are all in for Jesus, give everything for Jesus, and now they're as far away as they could be. Why? Because they were in it for them. They were in it for what Jesus was doing for them. What would it mean for you to be in it for Jesus himself? That's what it means to follow. Listen, and I'll close with this. I'm not saying this to you as someone who has arrived. Right? Why? Because listen to some of the prayers that the Apostle Paul prays. Right? If anyone had arrived, it was the Apostle Paul. Right? Enduring persecutions. Listen to what he prays constantly and longs for. I long that I might finish the race, he says. What is he saying? I don't want to be the rocky soil guy. I'm praying that my faith is sincere, that I make it to the end, right? None of us are above this. And so disciples, we make the constant decision to stay the course. Let me just give you one redeeming thought. Because here's the truth. The parable of the soils is not just about a once and done planting. Jesus can replant, right? You can be planted on rocky soil and grow up and flame out and then 10 years later be dropped in the right soil and bloom in its beauty. There's no end for you. What I'm saying to you this morning is if you realize that it's rocky soil, you've got one of of three options, really. Right? You either say, oh well, and keep living the way you're living. Or you call other people into your garden and say, can you help me get some of these rocks out of here? Or you find a way to be transplanted into a new garden of new places. To follow Jesus means not only that we call him Lord, but we do what he says. He's not just useful to us, but we are his. And we follow him. Can I pray with you?